Welcome to episode number three of Colorado TechCast. Hey everyone, Trapper here. Colorado TechCast brings you interviews with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and technology pioneers from across the state. We provide a behind-the-scenes look at who's doing what, why, and how you can get involved. Join us each episode to hear exciting stories of the technology happenings in our state. In this episode, I interview Michael Simpson, co-founder and CEO of Perrin. Based in the Rhino District in Denver, Perrin's mission is to make education relevant and hiring equitable. Awarded Startup of the Year by the Denver Chamber of Commerce, Perrin was founded on the beliefs that all people have amazing value, but most of us never realize our potential. People are too often put into ill-fitting boxes, told we can't, won't, and will never be able to obtain our dreams. Many people hear this so often that they never dream big or pursue their goals as if they were truly obtainable. This is something that Perrin wants to change. Now let's get started. So can you tell me in one sentence what Perrin does? Yeah, Perrin actually identifies what makes people successful and provides the tools to be able to uh, bridge those gaps. So we do that for employers. We do that for workforce development centers, and we do that for educators. So there's probably a lot of science behind the questions and the assessments, right? Yeah, there's a lot of science uh, behind uh, the uh, survey itself. Uh, It was originally created in 1949 by Dr. Harrison Goff at UC Berkeley, but it was held rather closely to the vest in the psychological community because it's such an accurate survey. What we did is we took that survey, which was primarily designed for psychologists and counselors and psychiatrists to get behavioral information. Um, We rewrote all of the content and made it very friendly, and we presented it in a very friendly way, usable way for businesses and educators and individuals. Um, And so it's it's pretty unique to us that you can have such deep science that's presented in such a friendly way. and so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of science behind it and a lot of math. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a freakish amount of uh, calculus that's on the back end that helps us accomplish what we do in building job targets and performance targets, that kind of thing. I took it for myself a couple of days ago, and I was really surprised how accurately it, it kind of described myself. Yeah, it, that's usually the response. Uh, it's exactly why I'm, I'm in this business. I Originally, I, I found out about it when I was living in Russia and I was coaching young business people in Russia. And I used this, I got introduced to this science by a friend from Kazakhstan. I was stunned because I was certified on a bunch of other types of assessments. And I, I never really liked the fact that the language was either too fluffy and not actionable, or it was just a 60-page printed report and made it very difficult to be actionable. And I, I took this, you know, 10-minute survey, and it was it was crazy how insightful it was, even back in the day when the content was bad, and when the content was written for psychologists. And, and now we've spent, uh, I can't even tell you the tens of thousands of hours that have been spent in writing, I think, 275,000 words of content now in the oh, wow. system. Yeah, it, it's like three 220-page uh, novels. But it's interesting, and you probably noticed, it's presented in like 600-character bite-sized pieces. Uh, so it's very, very small. It's like e- each bit of content is presented like uh, really four tweets. 
So um, it, there's a there's a, a, a talent uh, that uh, especially one of our writers has. Um, Susan writes our our content, and she uh, has this talent for fewer, fuller words. And um, there's just a lot of information packed in that little bit of data. <laughs> The content is bite-sized, right? I mean, you said each section is composed of what amounts to four tweets, right? Yeah, 600 characters. It's a little more than four tweets. But yeah, uh, so we, we've broken it down into different types of use of content. So there's insights. There's, there's tips for an individual. There's tips for the person helping them. Different tips for teachers, for students, for coaches, for people being coached. There are over 1,200 interview questions for people using the tool for hiring, uh, which about half of our customers do use it for hiring. And then we have all of our our lessons and the 300 exercises for development. You know, philosophically, our tool is not just about providing information. Philosophically, we we approach everything from the perspective of we, we accept you where you are, but we care about you too much to let you stay there. So we want to give you the information about um, to help you determine where you want to be. And then we want to give you the tools, whether they're insights, tips, lessons, curriculum, to develop the soft skills uh, that we call them essential skills, but a lot of people call them soft skills, to help you bridge that gap from where you are to where you want to be. So it sounds like you've you've been involved in this industry for quite a few years. Yeah, so I've been a I've been a coach, uh, executive coach since probably 2001 after my last company sold, and been doing it uh, coaching and consulting since then, and that's a long time. <laughs> and but this particular science, I like I mentioned in Russia, I started to use it. Oh gosh, more than 10 years ago, and. I had been certified in a lot of other things. And so when you've worked with a lot of psychometric instruments in the past, um, you, you really understand when you bump into something unique. So, yeah, we've we've tested you know, lots and lots of people in the last year or so, about I think 62,000 people have, uh, directly in companies we've worked with uh, uh, with the assessment and have helped them uh, develop. I mean, yesterday I was with a bank. The day before, somebody else was coaching um, a group that works with teens and and helps develop teens. And so, th- there's a there's a, a wide uh, wide variety of organizations we work with. So, have you always wanted to be an entrepreneur? You know, I am I am somewhat unconventional. <laughs> uh, I have been intrapreneurial. In a lot of organizations, uh, so I worked for a two and a half billion dollar company, and they put me in charge of their product marketing strategy for a product that was ninety percent of their revenue. And six months later, I mean, you'd think it was the dream job, right? The biggest product in a very large, the fifth largest software company in the world. But six months later, I said, I don't believe this is the future of the company. I think we need to take this really exciting technology inside and give it away for free and put it on our competitor's platform. I was immediately Satan to half of the company and the savior for the other half. And very, you know, it just seemed like the right thing to do, right? So uh, I constantly have done those types of things inside of companies. But I, but I have to be real straight with you. 
being an entrepreneur is incredibly different than being an innovative person inside a company and you know which people would tend to call an intrapreneur when you're outside of the supports of a large institution that has kind of promoted you to a position and given you resources to do a job is very, very different than taking an idea and having to go get those resources yourself and convince people who may not even know you to support this idea. It is a very, very different beast and and quite an education. Not only do you have to um, develop the product, you also have to sell the vision to the people who you need to have build the company. Yeah. uh, Funders, and every single employee in my company, right? Um, people who I would like to be in my company a year from now. I mean, I have to think about things. Uh, a, a startup CEO has to think about things that people inside a large corporation don't need to think about. Um, if your business unit is successful in a large corporation, you have a ready set of thousands of people who are ready to join. Uh, you have your pick of the litter, if you will. Um, when you're a startup CEO, you have an idea that you believe is important and valuable and worth people dedicating most of their waking hours and probably part of their sleeping hours to to for years right. to get off the ground with enormous risk, uh, then um, it's a whole different kind of selling. It's a whole different type of thought process. Um, and, and it requires you to gather a different kind of person instead of this very specific vertical skill sets. You're gathering people who are kinds of, um, jacks of all trade and Janes of all trade, uh, in the beginning because everybody wears a lot of hats. And then, then you have to shift as a CEO, you have to shift your mindset to putting in processes, to segmenting roles and responsibilities, to creating, the minimal structure at least required to be successful as you grow um, and constantly evolving that structure. And and those are things that you don't necessarily do inside of large corporation because a lot of those ideas and those concepts and those structures and processes and policies, they already exist. Uh, You can just run your business. Mm -hmm. It's a heck of a lot easier, honestly. It's probably a lot slower as well. I mean, it, I know I've spent my entire career in large organizations, and I'm often envious of startups or of smaller organizations because they're they're a lot more agile, a lot more nimble, um, and it seems like from a competitive advantage, they can really run circles around us. At, at times, it, it also depends on the air cover that leadership provides you. Um, I, I had struggled for probably a year trying to with another person who is the technical lead um, to get this business unit off the ground. And then Eric Schmidt came to run our company. This was a stop off he made for a couple of years before he went to run Google. And when he came, he was really adept at cutting all the crap out and saying, uh, Michael needs these resources and you're going to go find them or you will be that resource. And people didn't argue. He was probably, actually he was very frustrated with this kind of large stodgy company that wasn't terribly innovative um, in its culture. Uh, But uh, he was able to uh, rally the troops, if you will, uh, through cult of personality and also just understanding innovation. Um, And so after he started providing air cover, 
it was it was a lot easier. We we grew a a department from zero revenue to like 250 million in three years, um, and it was largely because we had the most important person in the company who was also well respected with a bulldozer in front of us clearing away. <laughs> so I think it's situational, and it really is a if the organization has a culture of innovation or doesn't have a culture of innovation, it makes it all the difference. What really inspired you to go into this industry and specifically what inspired you to start pairing? Well, well, actually I had two stops in between really three stops in between that work and, and pairing the, the second stop was a really fast growing CRM company. I think when I started, there were 43 million a year later, there were 106 million. And then we sold them for 260 million right before the dot com bust in 2001. And so we got out just in time. Um, and so that was a totally new experience of uh, when things are running really fast and it's kind of like redesigning the airplane in the middle of the air kind of thing. Um, and w- which was constantly happening at that, in that pace. And then working with, I worked a lot with and this was very influential to our work now. I worked a lot with startup CEOs and CEOs that kind of hit a revenue ceiling like at 10 million or 25 million. And those companies just really weren't going anywhere because they had to think differently, act differently. And it's just very difficult for people to make that shift without help. And then after that, I was in Russia working with young business people, some of them entrepreneurs, um, for about six and a half years. And just that, that combination of of experiences really motivated me to become as effective as I could be in helping people, one, understand themselves, understand their behaviors and reactions, define uh, where they wanted to be, and to help them bridge the gap to be able to get there. And when I began using this tool I found that I was much, much more effective instead of spending a month or two months meeting weekly or biweekly with someone to really understand where they were. I would be effectively working with someone within about 10 minutes and working on the the issues that were most pertinent to them. And I just saw that this tool was so powerful, the science was so powerful, I wanted to get it in the hands of many more people. And So one of the things that I used to do at these other corporations was kind of, uh, it's a modified version of Art of the Long View by Peter Schwartz, it's the, the guy that predicted the OPEC oil crisis before it happened. So in these companies, I had designed a process it's kind of an internet time art of the long view. And the concept is you can't predict the future, but you can predict all possible futures. If you narrow them down to three, usually general paths. And so one of those futures that I had put picked was that uh, science would become much more involved in and accepted within industry and in education to identify quality candidates and identify people how people would be developed. And this was, I think I probably first started to think about that in 2009. And at that point, the very, very few corporations were using what is today called pre-employment selection software. And um, now that has increased tenfold. 
already in that time frame. So that, that guess that I made was right. And now one of the biggest things that you hear in education is um, essential skills or social emotional learning, uh, SEL, uh, soft skills development, 21st century skills, all those things. It's kind of like the new hotness in education. Uh, in fact, states are passing legislation all across the country to develop these workability skills. So what makes people career ready? Okay. So um, okay. that seemed to be the thing that was, was happening, and, and I wanted to be a part of it. So when you launched Parent, did you, did you start with a co-founder, or kind of how did that come about? Uh, yeah, actually. So the, the clinical psychologist, who's also an executive coach, who introduced me to the science, um, I, I talked him into kind of stepping out of his practice and giving it to letting a, one of the, his other partners run it and to join me in this. His name is Dr. Ron Young, and he's a clinical psychologist, executive coach. He's a three-time entrepreneur and not in your typical tech startup kind of entrepreneur, but he started three businesses, um, one of them being a coaching and consulting business. And, and so, yeah, I, I invited him into this. Uh, it, it is, it's a bit of a different beast for him, uh, much more than it is being a clinical psychologist, much more than it is for me being in the tech industry for all this time. But both of us are learning a lot, I can tell you. So you handled the tech side and the business side, and he handled the scientific side? or That is exactly how it, our roles and responsibilities are laid out. Yeah, the, the typical way most tech startups work is you've got the business and the idea and the fundraising guy or a gal, and then you have a guy or a woman running you know, like the CTO, like you said. And that model works pretty well because there's a very clear delineation between both roles and responsibility. With science, you have a, a more focused delineation even than that, um, rather than just technical, because our entire company is technical. And we're all, you know, we are a technology and science-based company. So uh, we'll we'll need to bring on a CTO here sometime soon because our tech team is just getting too big. In a company that uses science, a three-person co-founder group is probably ideal. So I imagine you're pretty heavy into data science and kind of the analytical. Yes. We, uh, we have in our system automated a lot of the data analytics because we're such data freaks. I mean, everything that we do is, is data. And the value of, of what we provide our customers is analytics. So my wife says I should have been an industrial engineer because every time I do something twice, I, I am desperately trying to automate it before I have to do it a third time. Yeah. Um, I call it lazy. She calls it um, engineering. So every time we're analyzing data, we try to provide that capability for our customers in an easy-to-use way. So I think that makes a lot of sense. The value that you're providing your customers is actionable data. And the more you can make that data actionable and the easier for them to consume and, and make decisions and, and so forth and so on, the more value that they'll derive from your product, right? So I think, that's, I think that makes perfect sense. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about how Parent is funded, if we can. Well, we, we started uh, the... The founders started with um, prototyping ourselves. I, I wanted to spend our own money, uh, and we outsourced some of our early prototyping to make sure that we could bring a product to market. What we thought we could do technologically with the science was possible. So we funded that ourselves. Then we took the concept to friends and family, and the first investor was neither. It was a friend of family, 
um, it was uh, uh, the CEO of a European bank, um, which was interesting. And then we had some other friends introduce us to some of their friends. And so we ended up getting three partners with Cooley uh, Law Firm investing um, and then some other family and friends. And then over the last year, we've had four institutional investors come on board. Uh, so Vocal Education, Village Capital, Gray Matters, and New Markets Venture Partners uh, joined us. We still haven't done a large round. We've raised about $1.7 million, But next year, we're planning on doing a much larger round. So for somebody who's never worked with venture capitalists before, do you have any lessons learned or would you do it again? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, actually, I've been, we've been fairly cautious about that. The, the biggest, there's, there's probably two big lessons that I've learned. And they seem a little contradictory, but they're, they're really not. One is don't take too much money too early. And I, I, and that, that's, that's a really important one. Most of the reasons why startups go bankrupt and they shut their doors is because they took too much money, not too little. When you take a lot of money early on in your process, there is an expected return in a certain amount of time. And the thing that every startup CEO needs to understand is that all of their projections will be wrong. And there will be the occasional exception to that rule who will go, you are wrong. But uh, 90 plus percent of the time, your projections are gonna be wrong. It'll take longer to do what you think you can do. And you'll set those expectations for, for someone else and then they'll you know, wanna have your head too early, but the learning process of, you know, implementing something, building it, implementing, getting feedback and iterating is the process that helps you build the right product. And pivoting is just something that happens. Um, and if you take too much money, it almost prevents the pivot in many ways. So we didn't take a lot of money early on and we didn't take institutional money. We took it only from individuals. And then when we started to take institutional money, I didn't take as much as they wanted to give me. Um, and I believe that the best way to know if it's time to take large amounts of, of VC funding is do you have your sales model, your lead generation model, your conversion model nailed? Um, so that it is at least a predictive model. If you put four quarters in one Coke machine, you should get a Coke. If you put eight, you should get two. Your sales and lead gen and marketing needs to be reliable, fairly reliable math. And until that's the case, in most cases with you know a few exceptions, I recommend not taking a lot of venture capital funding. So when it comes to taking on VC money, People often talk about smart money versus dumb money. Uh, so smart money, the thought is it buys you introductions and buys you advice, right? And the dumb money just is just money in the in the banking account. Um, when you were looking at VCs, what sort of evaluations did you do in terms of the fit to your company versus what they could offer? Well, I, I interviewed my VCs as well. Uh, the the first one that invested uh, was through an accelerator. We were invited into their accelerator. Uh, and it was interesting. It was a peer vote. So I got to know these people over four months, but they didn't choose to invest in us. The other peers in our accelerator cohort chose us for them to invest in us. 
So after spending four months together, they decided that we were the best investment opportunity. And then Village Capital was forced to invest in us. I think they were happy about it. It was a good choice. But they really didn't have a voice in which company to invest in. They, they had two of the 12 in the cohort um, got investment. Um, but they were positive enough about it that they introduced us to others. Um, and so there was that relational connection where I had one investor say, if you're good enough for Village Capital, you're good enough for me. I helped start it. So that was great manners. Then New Markets Venture Partners wanted to give us more money than we were willing to take at that time because we thought our valuation was a little too low. So I said, hey, we, we'd really like to partner with you. And the reason why I came to that conclusion is I interviewed some of the CEOs in their portfolio. I said, I would like to have some some folks to talk to that uh, you've already invested in, some that are no longer in your portfolio. And I would love to talk to at least one CEO where you felt like it didn't work out. And they gave me those names. And I had those conversations. And I came away feeling like uh, much or all of what that VC had told me makes them different was actually true. Uh, Every VC says we're different because blah, blah, blah. Um, and they often say the same thing because we get involved and we're there in your hard times. And, you know, when you actually talk to folks in their portfolio or who used to be in their portfolio, you often hear that they're either heavy handed or they're absent or, you know, something. So, uh, I, I think every, uh, entrepreneur needs to do due diligence on the companies they're choosing to invest with. There's some, I have a blacklist uh, that I will never take money from some of those companies. That's smart. I mean, you, you interview your employees, right? And as a job seeker, you interview the company that you're going to go work for. So yeah, um, I think that's really smart. It's really smart advice. So what's the, what's been the hardest decision you've had to make as a, as a CEO? Oh gosh, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, one, one of the hardest decisions was to pay myself. And it sounds silly, but you, you get into this pattern early on of just putting all of your money back into the company and back into the company and back into the company. And um, But uh, your own uh, health, uh, as far as financial health, stability, that type of thing is – in the early stages when you don't have that $5 million check that you just got handed by a VC or, or more, um, to you know, accept that, hey, maybe this thing is working and I should act accordingly, that's a big mm-hmm. decision. Um, maybe it's not big for some people, but for me, it, it's, it, it was a big decision. Uh, another uh, really, really hard decision is to was to uh, hire when I'm not ready, right? To hire before the revenue, and that kind of decision can kill your company or it can make your company. Knowing when to bring on new talent, and it's a nerve-wracking thing uh, because if you make that bet and that talent doesn't do anything, or they are, they do more harm than good. Uh, you just put your whole company at risk. 
So that's a that's a that's a really hard mm-hmm. thing, honestly. I think the third thing was to say no to money. That everything in the every fiber in your being says take the money, take the money, take the money. Um, but there have been times when I said no, I won't take the money on those terms, right. um, even though they weren't horrible, but they weren't what we needed at the moment. So yeah, those are three really hard things. And they're all related to money, but they also all um, are critical to your culture as an organization. Yeah. yeah, it says a lot for the company, right? Or the the company's management. If you take money that isn't on the best of terms, as, as you said, you're not doing a service to the to the company. Once I was offered terms that made it really good for me, but would have diluted everybody in our company, but not me. And... It would have given us runway. Maybe I could have corrected it later. And I said no, because I just didn't think it was right. It's a lot of burden to bear. It it, it was. And it made it financially difficult for us (laughs) for a period of time. But, you know, we, we came out of it. I don't know how I'd feel about that decision now if we had not. I mean, hindsight's 2020, right? So now it's good, but, you know, you don't always know the alternative. Yeah. I can't say I was brilliant. I was... I can say I just made the best decision I could at the time, but it could have very easily gone yeah. sideways. Was there ever a point you wanted to turn back? Uh, there have probably been three times when we were within 24 to 72 hours of not being able to make payroll. And that kind of stress, I mean, you've got people in your company having babies and, and uh, you know, folks applying to MBA school and, you know, people moving across the country to join you packing up their families and then you have some some deals that don't close or get delayed or you know something i did you know was a wrong guess right and and then something in every single situation miraculously happened in the right time to be able to pull us through and you start to you start to think well i don't really want to be in that situation again but it kind of sounds like or feels like there's a sense of inevitability that, you know, maybe this is meant to be. And, uh, but yeah, there's, there's been lots of times when it's just been so hard. I'd say it's really the hardest when your spouse is not, or your partner is not in it with you. And, and that, that is always the hardest thing. Um, Fortunately, my my spouse now um, is. Uh, there was a time when what we were doing was really just foreign to her, and now she's heavily involved and understands and and um, is completely engaged. But honestly, that was a really hard time for me, is when you know the the person you care about the most doesn't understand why you're giving so much to this company and you have so little left. Yeah. I can imagine that being a strain on the relationship also follows you to work. Yeah. yeah. It does. It, it affects everything. And so the work-life balance is a really important thing. It's, uh, um, you know, I, I, people say I'm a, I'm a good coach, but you know, it's, um, coaching yourself in some of these areas is, is at times yeah. difficult. I, I, the, my problem is I just love work. I absolutely love not just this work. I just love work. I mean, if I'm remodeling my basement, I'll do it for 18 hours a day. I mean, I just 
love work. <laughs> so that's just something. If you marry me, that's what you get. Right? <laughs> so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the local community and kind of why you started here, where you're sourcing your talent from, any challenges you're having with the local economy, either you know getting talent or retaining talent. So when you started Perrin, were you living in Colorado at the time? Technically, no. Um, you know, I'd worked in Silicon Valley. I worked in Utah. Um, worked in Arizona. My business partner was in Austin. I had a cabin at 11,400 feet in Fairplay, but you couldn't say I was living in Colorado. And and I, I really did the analysis. I was like, do, do I move to Austin? I mean, it's a startup hotbed. And this was 2011. I was thinking about this, right? Um do I go to Silicon Valley? Do I go to Utah? I mean, all those areas, I would say, you know, Utah included, were much more advanced at, in 2011 uh, for startups and entrepreneurism than Denver was. But, you know, I spent some time in Denver and I went to a few things and I just got this different sense, honestly, that Denver had this... Uh, air of collaboration, this uh, humility to it as a culture, because it was a land of transplants. It wasn't people that were trying to fit in, like Silicon Valley. Everybody's trying to be, I'm part of the, the tech culture here. And unless you were in HP's garage, you know, years ago, um, you're, you're, you're new to this in some way. And so in Denver, I just felt like there was I would go to a meeting or I'd talk to someone, some kind of mixer. Someone say, hey, what are you thinking about doing? And they go, oh, I need to introduce you to so-and-so. And in an hour, I'd have an email, like a really warm introduction email. And, and I just felt like this town with the, a lot of the changes that were happening, um, the Colorado Technology Association, the Commons on Champa, just the way that government was partnering with industry was totally unique. And I knew that what we would do would affect both government and industry. So we, we, we basically stuck our flag in Denver and said, we're going to give it a shot. And I am so glad we made this choice. Absolutely. I, I, I would be nowhere else other than Denver. You know, it's funny you say that because especially 2011, as I've been doing these recordings, so many people have said, you know, it was 2011, 2012, and I went to a meetup and I met somebody and they introduced me to somebody else, right? Um, or they got yep. involved with the CTA, or they got involved with Denver Startup Week, and so yeah, I, I think I think you're right on with uh, Denver being being open, warm, and uh, and collaborative. I think it sets Denver apart from any other city I've I've been to. Yeah, all the way from the governor, right? So the governor set up the Colorado Workforce Development Council that's run by Stephanie Vec and this amazing team, um, reporting directly to the governor essentially, and. Um, to create a partnership between business and the government uh, and to then bridge it with education. You have organizations like Colorado Succeeds that are bipartisan, that uh, bring together educators and industry and government to really meet the needs of, of the, the talent pipeline uh, and, and the future business of the of the state there's there's so many of those types of projects and then eric matizic he's he does such a fabulous job with starting the cta the vision that he had he's now the cto for the state working for the governor and i mean just an all-around nice guy and because of we had the right people who had the right motivations 
not self-serving. All of these people seem to be just humbly doing their jobs and doing what is right. And I don't see any of them arrogantly trying to take credit or pad their own resumes. People in Denver unashamedly are just doing what they feel is right. And it's hard not to uh, respond to yeah, that. They're, they're very open. And if you want to get involved, just show up, right? Just to start contributing in whatever ways you can. And I think eventually you'll, you'll work your way into a position. The chamber as well. Denver chamber is fantastic. I mean, I, I've never seen a chamber so involved and so open and so willing to take feedback. It's like, there's this ecosystem here that kind of spans education, industry, and government that it just doesn't exist anywhere else. So speaking of the chamber, I know that in 2017, you won the startup awards. Yeah, Denver startup of the year. We're very humbled to hear that. So what was the competition for that like? I know it's, I mean, Denver's obviously a hotbed right now. Can you uh, kind of talk me through that process? The process was really quite interesting. So we went through two of them recently. One of them was Colorado Companies to Watch, which had its own level of stringency and, and due diligence. And then the startup of the year is the Denver Business Awards. They give away, I think it's 16 awards. I'm not sure exactly the number, but it's for women or minority-owned business, large business, green business, those types of things. Startup was one of the categories. I heard there were several hundred uh, applicants in that. I think we were originally nominated by someone. And then we had to go through two rounds of applications. And then it was narrowed down to some finalists. And then we had a group of judges that were former winners in different categories come and spend, I think they were going to spend two hours with us. I think they ended up spending three and a half <laughs> and interviewed me, interviewed our team, and I, I talked to one of the judges after the main event when we won, and, and I said, what really was it? And she said, you know, there was a lot of great things that we saw and just, just how much you loved the city and, and uh, the work that you're doing. She says, but it was really your team. They were so committed and so passionate about what you're doing. She said... I think we cried three times just listening to your teammates talk about what they do and why they do it. It's really hard to argue when people are so passionate that they make you connect to that passion and they're not the person running mm -hmm. the business. I, I was, I couldn't tell you how, you know, I felt like the Grinch when it, you know, his heart gets so many times at regular size and I'm just so proud to hear once again, it's not just me who sold out for this. It's, it's everybody here. Just, I mean, it's an amazing thing. So as you're growing your company, are you able to find the tech talent you need locally or are you sourcing people from around the country? At this stage, you know, some people disagree, but at this stage, we're trying to create a culture and figure you figure out that culture out as you go, right? You tweak this and tweak that. And, and, and uh, there is a level of familial connection that I feel is necessary in these early stages of a company that requires proximity and time. We give people the flexibility to work from home. I have one person who comes in once or twice a week. Uh, one, one of our devs is at home every Friday, but he works. I don't really care where you do your work, but I want there to be enough time together so that we, we not only know what each other is doing, but we know each other. And that we, that we have to know enough, care enough, to be willing to sacrifice for each other. And I don't know how you do that over 
Skype call, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think building that culture at this stage is, is incredibly important, right? Because if you do it right, as you continue to grow as a company, that culture will follow. At least, at least until some point. Yeah, I'm constantly evaluating, you know, hey, what's working right now? What's happening naturally? What is, you know, not with so much a master plan, although I do write a lot of things down, but, but kind of looking at, you know what, this thing that is naturally occurring, when we get a certain size, that's not going to naturally occur anymore. And is there a way, without being weird, to to instill that in, in new people, right? To create an environment that can foster that type of, you know, jovial atmosphere or um, the understanding. Um, you know, as, as you grow, everything becomes more isolated. Uh, it's more segmented. The, the gaps of knowledge are uh, usually equal to the gaps of relationship. And, um, and but relationship is what then breeds knowledge, right? So you get into this functional spiral where for people to be efficient, they have to be in some way separate. Um, but you lose so much by doing that. So it's, it's quite a dance to figure out as you grow. And, and having been in a company that went from 43 million to 106 million in a year, and we, we tripled our staff in a year, um, I, I know the hazards of that, it, and and so I want to I want to grow this company in a way that that uh, we're able to be intentional in all that we do and have less of it actually happening to us. Maybe a pipe dream, um, but I don't want to be correcting issues. I'd like to be able to see them coming at a little bit of a distance. So, what does the future of Perrin look like? Uh, well. Uh, you know, it's not it's not a statement. You know, I'm tempted to make flippant statements about that, but um, you know that that is a chapter that I am really looking forward to reading right now. There's there's certain books when you when you're reading them, you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to go to this next chapter. Um, and there's certain books where you just can't put down; they just leave you hanging at the end. And I'm kind of right now at the nearing the last couple pages of one of those chapters where we're on the on the verge of just some some pretty rapid growth which will require my role to be very different i think what you'll see is that a lot of what we've done in colorado will become uh influential nationwide and maybe worldwide um and honestly i it's because a lot of people in Colorado were very forward thinking how they think about workforce development and education. Um, and so I think you'll see us do a lot of statewide projects, um, a lot of uh, work in the government um, with military and veterans, uh, a lot of work in uh, post-secondary education as well. Um, I think um, we, we expect to triple in uh, people in revenue uh, for the next couple of years. Future's looking pretty bright then. That's good to hear. You drive through a lot of intersections and there's a lot of people who, who uh, you know, can hinder your growth or you yourself can make a wrong turn. So people say I'm innovative, uh, creative person. 
but I'm also cautious in many ways, right? So I think our future is very, very bright. Our team thinks our future is very, very bright. I'm constantly looking around at what could uh, cast a shadow over that bright future and trying to move as many of those things out of the way as I can. Well, I wish you luck on that journey. Like you, I look forward to reading the chapter of, uh, of Perrin's success. So how can people find more out about Perrin? Well, the easiest way, of course, in this day and age, is just to go to Perrin.com, P-A-I-R-I-N.com, and poke around on our website. You can even try our science yourself. Just click the Try for Free button and give it a shot. If anybody is interested in learning how to develop the skills of success, soft skills, things like collaboration, teamwork, critical thinking, resiliency, determination, if you feel like there's a employees or students that you're interested in developing these skills in, or if you'd like to be able to hire people based on those, then, you know, pop up to the website, pop me an email, msimpson at parent.com, and we'd be happy to learn more about you while you learn more about us. Michael, I want to thank you again for your time today and for coming on Colorado TechCast and telling us about Perrin. For those of you interested, I would definitely encourage you to check out the assessment at Perrin's website. I took the assessment myself the other day and was really surprised how accurately it portrayed me in terms of strengths and weaknesses. And I would encourage any of you who are interested in further developing your soft skills and 21st century skills that Michael touched on to check out the other products and services that Perrin offers. Thanks for listening in today. I really enjoyed my conversation with Michael, and it's fascinating how accurately assessments such as Perrin's can really hone in on what makes a person unique and how to best match that person to a company. That brings us to the end of today's episode. So I really want the show to be relevant to you. Drop me a line and let me know what you think. On Twitter, you can reach me at COTechCast, or if email is your preferred vehicle, you can email me at trapper at coloradotechcast.com. I do read and respond to all emails, so don't be afraid that your email will end up at the bottom of my inbox.